Many years ago, I was diagnosed with upper airway resistance syndrome (UARS). It's not as severe as sleep apnea, but I do experience sleep disruptions at night. So, what is UARS exactly? What should we know about it, and what can we do about it? Hi, I'm Dr. Ishan, a licensed clinical psychologist, board-certified behavioral sleep medicine specialist, and adjunct clinical faculty at Stanford School of Medicine. Today, our guest is Dr. Stephen Park. He's an integrated sleep doctor and ENT surgeon, with a passion for improving lives through better sleep and breathing. He's an expert in sleep apnea and upper airway resistance syndrome. Years ago. He published a book called "Sleep Interrupted." He also hosted a podcast, "Breathe Better, Sleep Better." So he will offer us his unique insights from both medical and surgical perspectives, help us understand sleep breathing problems, especially UARS. Welcome to Deep Into Sleep Podcast, Doctor Park. Thanks for inviting me. So you are the first ENT surgeon on the show so far.、Um, what is ENT surgeon? What do you do normally? Well, an ENT surgeon addresses basically as ENT surgeons were otherwise known as otolaryngologists, ENT, ear, nose, and throat. But people don't realize what we do because people think that we just take care of earwax and take care of nosebleeds and take out tonsils. But we are a regional specialty, meaning that. We are medical doctors and surgeons of the entire upper head and neck area, except for the eyes, brains, and the teeth. We're medical doctors, like we're endocrinologists, pediatricians, surgeons, oncologists, rheumatologists. We have to we have to cover all the different specialties because we're a regional specialty. Wow, the whole part of the body, right? right.、Yeah. And that's just generally speaking. I know when I'm in Stanford Sleep Center, ENT surgeon team actually is a big part of the sleep medicine.、Yes. And can you please explain to us more what your role in sleep medicine? Well, I have to say that Stanford, the people at Stanford, especially the sleep surgeons there, and also Dr. Gimeno, who is one of the founding fathers of sleep medicine, they're instrumental in my education. Over ten years ago,、uh, they really wrote the book on on this area, and so sleep apnea. That's why we do sleep surgery. Obviously, there's a lot of different reasons for it, but people think that it's because you, if you get overweight, you have it. But now we know that even if you're skinny, young and skinny, and don't snore, you can still have sleep apnea.、Mm, right. We're going to talk about upper airway resistance syndrome a little bit later. This is for people who don't have sleep apnea who still have problems breathing at night. Um, but sleep surgery is—it's so vast. It's, you can—it talks about everything from the nose, the tonsils, the adenoids, septum, sinuses,、um, the throat, the soft palate, the tongue, epiglottis, voice box, the trachea, the windpipe, the whole airway from the tip of the nose all the way to the voice box is involved, and including jaw surgery too. So there's a whole array of different surgical options. Obviously, it's not your first option for sleep apnea. It's your last option. And, but obviously, as you know, there are lots of different ways of treating these sleep breathing disorders, and also you kind of have to integrate other holistic areas as well. And being a sleep doctor myself, I also start out with conventional or traditional、um, uh, sleep hygiene techniques, and、uh, you have to integrate that before you start medical or,、uh, or surgical therapy. 
Yeah. And uh, so it sounds like because myself, I almost went ahead to do a jaw surgery. And so I tried to learn a little bit more from that. And I listened to some lectures in Stanford. Uh, and I know surgery could be an option for some kind of sleep breathing problems by uh, surgical options. You can open up your airway further to help you breathe better at sleep. Yeah, I, th I think one of the more um, exciting things are happening right now. Sleep surgery, it's not, there have been any major innovations recently, except for the Inspire procedure, which we're going to talk about later, the tongue nerve simulation option. But for the most part, it's been kind of plateaued in terms of sleep surgeries, because it's only so much you can do with the upper airway. But I think the exciting thing is that there's a lot more awareness among the dental community regarding expanders, um, surgical assisted palatal expansion, different variations of jaw surgery. Because ultimately, as you probably are aware, the reason why we have these issues is not because we're overweight, it's because the jaws are getting smaller. And so everyone has crooked teeth, more narrow faces, um, smaller smaller sinuses. And it's a big problem right now. So this is one of my interests is that if you look at people even 50 years ago, definitely 100 years ago, people had much wider jaws and faces. Oh. Yeah. Go back to the 20s and 30s, they look like aliens because of these wide jaws with high cheekbones. Um, there's even this paper that I saw, I think they analyzed smiles. They looked at college faces from early 1900s compared to now. And every 10 years, they did a composite of all the, the faces and the smiles. But I was looking at not the smiles, but the facial features. So what you see is that the, as the decades go along from 1900 to 2000, the width of the face is, gets more narrow and longer and taller. Oh. The modern faces are all narrow and taller. Oh, I'm wondering how. I did not realize over the generations, actually, it's changing. I thought it's genetically, we just uh, always like this. For example, Asians tend to have narrower airways somehow. And I know a lot of Asians in China, um, friends, 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 they all snore at night. Yeah. Well, it is a very common problem, but it's not genetic. Oh. Um, and we can go back into history a little bit. Um, there's a really fascinating book called Consider the Fork by B. Wilson. And she talked about cooking instruments throughout the ages. But there's one particular chapter everyone should read about how the bite changed with the advent of more cooking utensils, like the cutting knife and other utensils, right? So she gave this historical note about, um, in, I think, in England and China. With technology, you had cutting tools like a knife. So before, you know, you had to cut it, prepare it. You had to rip it off the, the bones, like off, off, off the leg, and just chew it. But then after technology, you could cut it out yourself, either you know, outside of the dining room or you can do it yourself on the plate. And so once you started to be able to cut the meat yourself, you didn't have to chew as much. And so what they found in England was that before, before the advent of the cutting tools, you had what's called an edge-to-edge -edge bite. The front teeth and the bottom teeth met like this. But then after rich people started to have access to knives, you started to have an overbite. So the peasants had these edge-to-edge -edge bites for a long time. So the rich people had the, had the dental crowding first. And they found the same pattern in England and also China because they invented the, I think the towel knife where they could cut the meat really well. So it's really fascinating history with the um, taking a look at dental uh, features and skulls and teeth.
Right. So how we use our muscles, how we use our like uh, um, bone structure to go through day to day life that actually impact our structure. Right. And that's why everyone needs braces now. <laughs> yes, I just put the braces. <laughs> I almost done with my braces. Yeah. yeah. Overbite is, is a thing. I, I have so many friends has overbite. I never really thought by, back in the history and how we chew, how we bite. Wow. Okay. Well, and there are also other reasons why this is happening. Uh, obviously, not just the invention of knives and cutting tools, but also uh, softer diets now. Everything is processed. And also less breastfeeding because they've shown that dentists have shown that bottle feeding causes malocclusion and dental crowding and quicker teeth. And then if you notice this stuff for whatever reason, when you're a mouth breather, that causes malocclusion and dental crowding also. So there's a lot of different variables on top of the chewing issue that's preventing our, our faces from growing properly, which leads to other health conditions, especially breathing problems and sleep problems. Right. And that's why now we have so many like team approach to really work on these issues together from different angles, like surgeons, I know malfunctional therapists, and many other people all come in to help uh, really correct and optimize this kind of structure, muscle function, and eventually our sleep. And I right. think you mentioned something really important earlier, considering all this. So even a thin people can still have sleep breathing problems, right? I'm an example. When you mentioned upper airway resistance syndrome years ago, I'm always this thin and never like overweight and very healthy lifestyle. But years ago, I was diagnosed with upper airway resistance syndrome. Back then, I did not know what that is, but I qualified for a CPAP machine. <laughs> so oh, okay, good. You're lucky. Yeah. And then I, had, I realized I have a family history of uh, sleep apnea. So um, I'm happy you are like interested in that area so we can I can learn more from you about that because I feel like I still know very limited knowledge about it. Well, let, let's go back to how it's diagnosed. Let's go back to the, the sleep study. So to be diagnosed with an official sleep apnea diagnosis, you need to have at least five apneas and hypopneas per hour, meaning that apnea means you stop breathing for more than 10 seconds. And hypopneas, you probably know this already. <laughs> and hypopneas are more than 30 or 50% partially obstructed breathing, again, more than 10 seconds. So a combination of both apneas and hypopneas per hour is your apnea hypopnea index. So you need at least five or more to say you have moderate apnea. Now, let's say that someone like you or me, and I have this too, you stop breathing 25 times an hour for nine seconds each, then your score in the sleep test is zero. Hmm. So you don't have lack of oxygen, but you have interrupted sleep. So you can't stay in deep sleep. Every time you go into deep sleep, when your muscles relax, your brain waves wake up and you don't realize it. And sometimes you wake up when you awake, but that, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And so that fragmented sleep is what prevents you from getting deep reversing sleep, which raises your stress hormones, it lowers your rep reproductive hormones, lowers your thyroid hormones. It's just that there's this cascade of hormonal conse consequences. And not only that, you're, you're tired, you can't focus, you can't think, you, even poor digestion and anxiety, depression. There's a whole list of things that can happen because of sleep fragmentation. Mm, yeah, I think these are great basic knowledge for our audience to really listen and understand what it is. And sounds like no matter whether uh, the sleep study really shows based on the current standard, 
the sleep is interrupted. Yes. And when sleep got interrupted, if especially interrupted a lot, mm-hmm. that's going to impact us somehow. Right. 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 That's, actually, that's actually the name of my book it's called Sleep Interrupted. Oh, I love <laughs> that name. Ten years, about 12 years ago. It's not outdated. The concept is still very valid, but obviously there's a lot more new technology now. But it's a good introduction to the one, what I'm talking about. You know, talk about all these ideas I kind of put together with the dental concepts and you, especially with upper airway resistance syndrome. Mm. So, you know, a lot, like you said before, a lot of people have this. I would say that more people have URS than sleep apnea. Because it's like a continuum. Most people with UIRS are relatively thin and skinny and younger. What Dr. Gimeno found was that every year, about 13% go into sleep apnea, especially if they gain weight. Oh. And we see this all the time, especially in menopausal women. So a lot of women will say, I'm really, I was really thin and skinny and I couldn't gain weight even if I wanted to. But I had all these fatigue issues and headaches, migraines, cold hands, cold feet, digestive problems. But then as they went through menopause and put on weight, they went into sleep apnea. They started to snore more. They stopped breathing a lot more and had all the medical complications of sleep apnea, like diabetes, high blood pressure, heart disease. Right. That's what I heard from my colleagues. Uh, also, they warned me right now, you, you're like, if you're breathing and your family history is like this, even though you possibly don't really qualify for sleep apnea, but there's several milestones for women, especially like pregnancy and menopause yes, yes. that could mm-hmm. make the symptoms worse. So it sounds very, <laughs> very scary. And that's what happened to my wife. My, my wife has had URS, severe URS, but then during pregnancy, especially her first pregnancy, she gained 50 pounds. She was miserable. And we didn't know that at the time, but she probably had sleep apnea because her father had sleep apnea. I diagnosed it. She had severe postpartum depression after her first pregnancy. And then after her second pregnancy, she didn't gain that much weight, but she had, I think her URS got much, much worse because she was, after she delivered, um, she was really dizzy and lightheaded, severe fatigue, got, um, very cold hands and cold feet and digestive issues. But that only got better after kind of we, we addressed all of these issues with her sleep breathing problem and also other nutritional lifestyle factors as well. Wow. Yeah. So that's that's my question you just uh, touched on. Like what this URS could really do people, do to people and the uh, I know like we talk a lot about sleep apnea It's related to all these health problems, but what people should pay attention to. I listened to some lectures before about women during pregnancy, if they have undiagnosed sleep apnea or possibly um, upper airway resistance, they may relate to hypertension and other possibilities. And so I'm curious, is there like a clear link or risk factors people really should pay attention to? Oh, there's tons of studies showing that there's a, a very high risk of complications with untreated sleep apnea during pregnancy. Mm. I mean, two, three, even five, ten, five to 10 times higher risk of various conditions like diabetes, pregnancy-induced diabetes, preeclampsia, premature delivery, um, infant death, maternal complications. It's, it's really scary how severe these complications are. Uh, this is for sleep apnea. But if you look at, for example, something like preeclampsia, where at the very end of pregnancy, women go into high, they have high blood pressure. It's a very dangerous condition. Um, when they do studies on these women, they, many of them don't have sleep apnea, but they have lots of what's called sleep fragmentation and flow limitation. 
So the, the sleep is very fragmented. And in general, when your sleep is fragmented, what happens is it creates this chronic low-grade stress response in your body. So your body thinks it's under attack all the time. So think about what happens if you if you think you're under attack or if you're stressed all the time, your body is going to naturally shut down your higher thinking levels to go into fight or flight mode. And you're going to divert all your energy and blood flow away from your digestive organs or your reproductive organs and your higher level thinking to the you know lower level areas to fight or run. Right? Wow. Yeah. Imagine shifting all the blood flow away from the gut. So you're going to have stomach problems away from your reproductive organs, from your hands and your feet, diverts the blood flow away. And so that is what can cause a lot of these symptoms. That's why my wife was very dizzy and lightheaded when she got up really quickly. Oh, wow. And, but most people will not really check out their sleep breathing problems during no. pregnancy. It's not a routine checkup, right? Even though it sounds like so relevant and could be so dangerous. Right. Well, there's actually one protective element during pregnancy, which is when pre your progesterone levels go up, um, this is what helps to uh, maintain the, the uterus and the baby. But one of the beneficial um, effects of progesterone is that it acts as a respiratory stimulant. It helps you to breathe faster and stronger. It also gives your tongue more muscle tone. And they've done very elegant studies measuring the muscle tone in the tongue muscle. It's very gruesome. But anyway, what they found was that when, when you have more progesterone, you can breathe much better because you have more muscle tone in your throat. Oh. The tongue doesn't fall back, fall back as much. But notice what happens during pregnancy, progesterone goes through the roof, but after you deliver, progesterone drops, but you still have all that pregnancy weight. So that's what we, we figured out what happened with my wife, especially with her first pregnancy. Because she had all that weight gain, but then the progesterone, protective progesterone dropped. And the same concept you can apply toward menopause that happened just much slower over you know, 5, 10, 15 years. Because with women, about I think progesterone starts to drop beginning the late 30s, early 40s. So estrogen doesn't drop until the very end, but progesterone starts to drop very early. And that's one of the reasons why when before menopause, they, they, their sleep starts to get worse and worse. Mm, right, right. Perimenopausal uh, phrase, right? A lot of women nowadays are talking about it. Oh, okay. Wow. So a lot of things happen happening inside our body. We may or may not know exactly why, but we can feel the change, possibly. Exactly. Mm. Right. And also, you go even if you don't have it, once in a while, you will go into it. Because, for example, if you're completely normal and you suffer an allergy attack or have a cold, then you notice that stuff, you have more inflammation. And temporarily, you'll have short bouts of sleep apnea or URS. That's why you don't sleep well. You feel more tired. Right. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So it does not have to be a permanent disorder or something. Yeah, everyone kind of goes up and down and gradually if, if you gain weight, it's going to get a higher and higher. And so there, there are different life periods from birth to to, uh, to seniors where these things are always happening to, sort of, to a certain degree. And as you get older, as you can imagine, things stagnate more, uh, you lose more teeth. And it's expected that as you get older, you're going to have more of these sleep breathing problems. That's why also still seniors tend not to uh, sleep that well. They wake up earlier or they can't fall asleep, as you, as you probably know. Um, we think that's normal. But my theory is that it's because of this underlying sleep breathing problem.
Yeah, that's definitely a very reasonable uh, theory. Hmm. So earlier you mentioned there are treatments and uh, uh, new new things coming up in the field. So I do. I think many of our listeners by now possibly are really curious. Now we understand a little bit more about all these symptoms, all these risks. Can we do anything about this? Well, unfortunately, with upper airway resistance syndrome, if you don't officially have a sleep apnea diagnosis, nothing is covered by insurance. And now, fortunately, you probably had very mild sleep apnea, so you got something covered. But if you come in below that 5.0, if it's 4.9, you're out of luck. Um, and so people are told, well, you don't have sleep apnea, so that your fatigue is not coming from a sleep apnea condition. But a lot of people with these situations end up, for example, they go to their dentist, and dentists are fortunately a lot more aware of UIRS because they treat these things before they develop sleep apnea. So they can give you what's called a mandibular advancement device, which moves the lower jaw forward. And this is good for UIRS and also mild to mild sleep apnea as well, as has been proven in lots of studies. Um, so besides the CPAP machine for CPAP, now you can you can try CPAP machine for UIRS. And in some people it does work, but overall not as much as if you have severe sleep apnea. My recommendation is if you can afford it, just pay out of pocket for it. And they're not that expensive. Probably a couple, you can probably get something refurbished for a couple hundred dollars, but you have to buy the mask new and the hosing. It's it turn and miss with people with UIRS. I would say about 10 to 20% find that's helpful. And most of the time, they just it doesn't do anything or just makes things worse. And so I think the dental appliance is another good option, which is usually given for snoring and mild sleep apnea. Uh, in theory, that should work with UIRS as well. And that's why a lot of people who snore will undergo these dental treatments. Their lives change dramatically. They feel so much better. Their headaches are better. Their, their depression is better because you're not treating just treating the snoring, but you're treating the UIRS. Oh, oh yeah. So I, I did interview some dentists who specialize in sleep medicine. Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like they are doing something different than regular dentists, right? So if any of the, our listeners, either they have URS or they, they are in this weird stage, possibly mild uh, sleep apnea and don't really qualify anywhere, um, how can they talk to their dentist to get the right thing that really can help them? Well, I th like I said before, a lot of dentists are more aware of these issues now. And if they don't do these appliances, they can refer to someone that does do it. Oh. Um, all the sleep labs have referral patterns to dentists that do this as well. Um, but if you're not sure where to look, you can look up the American Academy of Dental Sleep Medicine's website and find someone next to you by putting the zip code. Mm, okay. Yeah. Sounds like, you know, uh, CPAP is one possibility, uh, one option, and this dental device is another option. And uh, for this URS or very mild sleep apnea, do people, uh, should people consider surgery at all or no, not yet? Um, not, not initially. Now, there's one area that I'm really, really, I guess I have to say aggressive about in, in offering is nasal surgery. After you've tried everything to improve your nasal breathing, because a lot of people with UIRS and sleep apnea have nasal congestion. And the reason is that if you look at your heart palate during development, normally it's kind of high like this, but as you grow, it, it drops. This is called palatal descent. And notice the molars get wider. So modern people, it's not doing this. It's just kind of staying like this. Mm. That's why people have crooked teeth because there's no space for the teeth. Now, 
this is the floor of your nose, which is the roof of your mouth. If it doesn't drop inside your nose, the septum, as it sits on the floor of the nose, if this doesn't drop, it's gonna buckle to one side. So that's what the deviated septum is. But also the side walls of your nasal cavity is more narrow like this because your, your molars didn't want your jaw didn't widen. So the, the nasal sidewall and the, and the jaws are the same, same wall. Okay, so you have more narrow nasal cavity, deviated septum, and then typically you're gonna have more inflammation in your nose due to allergies. They've even found that even with mild, mild uh, apneas, you can have reflux of your gastric contents into your nose. They found pepsin in the sinuses, nose, ears, and your lungs. So you have lots of inflammation which causes swelling and narrow nasal narrow passageways, which leads to a stuffy nose. Now, when your nose is stuffy, especially at night, you're gonna open your mouth more. Right. And when you open your mouth, the tongue goes back more, so you stop breathing more often. Then you suction up your normal stomach juices <laughs> and it causes a vicious cycle. Wow. So the nasal airway. Right. If Key, that's key. Now, unfortunately, if you do nasal surgery for sleep apnea, it's been found not to help in general for sleep apnea, which is a little bit surprising. Now, subjectively, patients feel much better, but objectively, the uh, the numbers on the sleep apnea test isn't isn't that satisfying. So, I think about only about ten percent of people they found success. But the reason why it's so important to address the nose first, and there's a lot of conservative things that you can start with. Obviously, you know, nasal saline irrigation. Uh, devices like breathe by trips or cones inside and also a lot of other um, alternative complementary options and one thing that helped me with my nasal allergies is taking vitamin d and there's a lot of literature about the benefits of vitamin d for sleep and allergies as, as well but anyway um first you have to treat the nose conservatively medically and then if that doesn't work then surgically and that's where i come in what we do in the nose we, most people think it's just a septoplasty but there's also the turbinates, these wings on the sidewalls of the nose that swell up when you have cholera allergy. And that's what gets inflamed and swollen. But what happens is if your nose is stuffy, as you breathe in, your nostrils cave in more here, especially if your nose is more narrow. So it's those three things together you have to address aggressively. Otherwise, that's why people who undergo septoplasties, it doesn't work all the time. The main reason is you didn't address the turbinates or the nostrils. But once you address all three, your success rates are much higher. Now, the reason why this is so important is it may not cure the sleep apnea, but it allows the CPAP and the mouth guard to work much better. So there was a study a while ago showing that people who could not tolerate CPAP use it on average about 30 minutes. But after nasal surgery, it went up to five and a half hours. Wow, that's a huge improvement. And I think the insurance standard is like four hours per night continuously or five hours per right. night. Or yeah. well, it's a very ridiculous formula that they made up about 20 years ago. Is it four <laughs> hours per, per three out of seven nights or four out of seven days per week over a 90 day period? It's, it's, yeah, I forgot the exact definition, but no, it's, it's uh, four, out of seven, four hours for four out of seven nights over a 30 day period. Yeah. Hmm. You know, there's yeah. Right. But, I know people have to tolerate that and be able to do that in order to really get their CPAP machine covered by the insurance. Yeah. <laughs> and the problem is that even if you are technically compliant, um, you can still have severe sleep apneas um, because the other four hours that you're not, you're not using it, you're having major apneas, right? 
Right. Wow. I rarely think about the nasal airway because we always talk about this oral airway, right? Um, but recently, you possibly heard this trend on TikTok uh, about mouse taping. And I think that's a good example about hmm, nose breathing or mouse breathing. And if you really have uh, like URS or sleep apnea, can you just stop yourself from mouth breathing so you can force yourself to nose breathe. I think that's dangerous, but I don't know how you think about it. Well, I have very strong opinions about that. Oh, okay. So I, I, actually, I actually encourage mouth taping. Uh, as far as I know, there's no reportive injury or death from that. It's just a concern. But before you try mouth taping, make sure you breathe well through your nose. So you have to do everything possible. For example, just using breed wet trips or nasal saline. Um, what I actually offer as an experiment for my patients is before we start chronic medical treatments like allergy sprays or shots, use Afrin, which is a decongestant spray. So this is that spray that you can't use for more than a couple of days because you get addicted to it because it works so well. Uh, use Afrin for three nights along with breed wet trips. So that will address the nostrils and shrink the turbinate tremendously. So it's like a temporary surgery. Mm. And so if, that, if you can breathe well through that, then tape the mouth. And normally I like to tape vertically with that one inch white tape you get from the pharmacy. I don't like going this way. Well, you can do it this way. But the problem is that if you tape your lips together, you can still open your jaws a lot. That's what's causing the obstruction behind the tongue. It's not the tongue tip, but the back of the tongue. It moves back a lot when you open your jaws even a little bit. Oh, and so what I do is I tape uh, vertically to go under the chin to kind of suspend a little bit more. So it's not perfect, but it's much better than just doing this. Oh. And if you have to breathe, you can breathe through the corners of your mouth. And mm. worst case scenario, if it's uncomfortable, just take it off. You'll wake up anyway. Because well, if you, if you don't use it, you'll wake up anyway because you stop breathing. So and if you use it, there's less of a chance you'll stop breathing because you keep your mouth closed. But the tape issue, it, it does help. In some people, it's dramatic. But like any other treatment, there's this gradation where it helps a certain number of people, maybe 10, 20, 30% amazingly well. The middle third, maybe somewhat in the last third, it doesn't help at all. It makes things worse. So there's no, I don't think there's any harm in trying. But again, that emphasize you have to make sure you're breathing well through your nose first. Okay. Yeah, that's important. And I'm wondering for certain people, maybe do you think they may need a nasal surgery first? if there's really a problem, right? And before they even try this uh, mouse taping strategy. Uh, no, no, you can do it even before. So some people, if they have allergies, they can be on allergy medications. Uh, also conservative things like using a HEPA filter or the allergy precautions. That's a major source of allergies too. Um, also not eating close to bedtime can uh, improve your nasal breathing as well. Because remember the reflux can come up into your nose as well. So there are a lot of conservative steps that a lot of people can get benefit from even before considering surgery. If you don't want to just keep doing all these 20 different things every day, then talk to an ENT surgeon and talk about nasal surgery. I am very happy to hear there's so many different options out there, actually. It's not like what we think, oh, this is hopeless, and I'm just going to grab whatever way and uh, uh, may or may not work. Yeah. Well, let me, let me talk about one other thing. So if you have sleep apnea, and most people in America who have sleep apnea are overweight because we, our country is, as, as a whole, we're, we have a big problem with obesity. 
I think something like 40% are obese in this country and another 30% overweight. Um, so if you have sleep apnea and you have, before you talk about treatment or nasal surgery or even CPAP, work on losing the weight first because that is that has the most impact on sleep apnea, including nasal congestion. Yeah, so lifestyle change and yes. your body. Yeah, earlier we talked about th even thin people can have this problem, but if you are overweight, that should uh, sounds like that's possibly the uh, I'm not sure the easiest way, but uh, the healthiest way to just uh, change your your body, your lifestyle. Uh, unfortunately, it's really challenging in our country because of all the uh, conflicting messages you get from your doctors and the media. <laughs> And all these uh, you know, trendy diets. Uh, I have a whole discussion about the dietary issues too, but that's a whole for a different time. But um, it's the priority is to is to lose that weight. Mm, yeah, because that's very important. And I think the fat and the whole like weight uh, can add on a lot of risk. I also heard I know like the diet. When you talk about the diet, at least drinking right before bedtime can increase the symptoms of sleep apnea at night, right? Small things yeah. like that. And we have to be cautious about if we really have this condition. Mm. Well, along the same lines, that's a very important point. Drinking alcohol relaxes your muscles. They stop breathing more often. But on top of that, the, the most important advice I give to everyone, no matter what condition you have, is to stop eating within three to four hours of bedtime. So no snacks, close at bedtime. Because the more sandwiches you have lingering, the more it's going to come up, even if you stop breathing just once in a while. And it causes more inflammation. Oh, that's great to know. We always give that uh, suggestion to people who suffer from insomnia. Oh, yeah. Um, but we rarely think about that or explain that from the sleep breathing uh, angle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's not the only reason that explains it, but it contributes to insomnia as well. Because if you stop breathing, um, that can mimic symptoms of insomnia as well. Oh, speaking of insomnia, did you ever hear about Dr. Barry Krakow's work? Uh, no, I'm not familiar with his name, depending on what kind of work. So he, I think he was a, he trained as an emergency physician, but he went to sleep medicine. So he had his own sleep lab in New Mexico. He, he was interested in studying people with PTSD, war veterans with trauma and, and insomnia. Nightmare he did nightmare therapy retraining. I'll send you the um, his studies and, and book, but basically his fascination was looking at people with insomnia who also had trauma symptoms and nightmares. And what he found was that people who had treatment-resistant insomnia, meaning that they tried all the medications, CBT didn't work, medications didn't work, and they didn't have the classic history of sleep apnea. So they did a screening test questionnaires for sleep apnea and they didn't qualify for sleep apnea. But they didn't do sleep studies yet. But when they did sleep studies on all these patients, the vast majority had undiagnosed sleep apnea. Oh. And so when you treat the sleep apnea, a lot of the insomnia, not all, but significant part of the insomnia gets better too. And I see that also. Um, insomnia gets better when they, when they put, get started on CPAP or some kind of treatment for sleep apnea. There's another study he did before he retired. He did a major landmark study that was published in The Lancet. He looked at, I forget, again, treatment-resistant chronic insomniacs, and he split them into two groups. One group got ASV machine, the adaptive 
servo ventilator unit, which is a high-end CPAP machine. The other group got a CPAP machine. And what he found was that I think the group with the ASV had something like a 65 or 70% success rate curing the, curing the insomnia completely. Oh. Compared mm. to 40% for the CPAP. But even the, the CPAP was helpful to some degree, but it's closer to the placebo effect also. What he found was that not everyone with these really hard to treat insomnia conditions is, is a purely psycho-behavioral, psychological insomnia. It's, it's, it's contributing, the sleep breathing problem adds to it. Because if you're not sleeping well, it's going to cause psychological problems, mm. anxiety, stress, limiting thoughts, those kind of things. And yes, and that, that, but that's also why it's important to complement what you do with CBT along with treating the breathing problem. That's where you get the best results. Right, exactly. And uh, I know in Stanford, at least, there are always, always have this guideline. If you're diagnosed with both insomnia and sleep apnea, you should go to treat your sleep apnea first yes. or else the treatment for insomnia may not be effective. So that's the workflow uh, that we follow most of the time. I am wondering maybe that's come from this wonderful work and to really guide our clinical practice. And for the nightmare treatment nowadays, yes, there are some very good evidence-based treatment out there uh, come from treating veterans and PTSD and yeah, like image rehearsal therapy, IRT, ERRT, all those are great method. Yeah. And I think Dr. Craco was he could definitely contributed to that to that line of research. Mm, yeah, that's great. I mean, uh, go back to dig out his paper to read more. Yeah, definitely send me whatever you have. I read some papers and manuals, but I just never remember <laughs> their names. I should pay more attention to the authors. <laughs> Wow, great. So see, like all these different sleep conditions are connected to each other. And it also entangled with our health. And even from the bigger picture, it's not just about sleep. It's different things all impact each other together, right? We always see the three pillar of our health, sleep, exercise, and the food. Um, and they definitely impact each other, especially when you talk about losing weight. It's not about, only about diet. It's also about exercise, activities, what you do, and it all impacts sleep, and sleep impacts those too. So yeah, it's just a, such a holistic and a whole view of our health nowadays, what we should do for ourselves. I think what happened also is that with the pandemic, I think a lot of people became more aware of their own health issues. And because they spent so much time online, I guess spending time at home, they got became more educated about your own health. And so there's a lot more awareness now about health and wellness compared to even five years ago, which is great because I, I really do think that we as patients, all of us as patients, including you and me, we can't depend on the medical system anymore. I mean, yes, they're very important. They do a lot of great work. But if you want good health, you have to take responsibility for it on your own. You kind of use the physicians and, and the um, professionals um, at, in places where it's needed. But you kind of have to be the orchestrator, the conductor of your healthcare, and not mm. depend on other people to tell you how to be healthy. Oh, I totally agree. I think every doctor, every specialty has their own limitation. Right. And uh, now, especially we are living in the Internet 
world and soon AI come out, it just like we're going to have so much information coming around us and so easy to grab this information. I think it's very important for us to understand a lot of information and eventually be responsible for our own health choice. At least know which doctor to go to, what, what should we should check out, just to learn more and consider more. Sometimes doctor may not know and they may not refer you to another thing. That's why I interviewed a lot of patients who are public speakers talk about how long it takes them to diagnose like narcolepsy or some other sleep disorders. It's like more than 10 years at least to get a diagnosis. And, you know. <laughs> is, is that true? I mean, I know that that figure has been around a long time. Has that gotten better with narcolepsy? I think it's better. It's just when you talk about individual stories, those oh, people, when they go back to their own stories, they are like, oh, it took me that long. That person took me that long. So, but I don't know the scientific big data nowadays, how many years. I'm sure it's getting shorter and shorter as sleep medicine's field really is, uh, you know, expanding. <laughs> I hope it's, it's getting better. It should be. But even by the time I graduate, I did not learn anything about sleep uh, until I got my PhD and got my license to practice. There's no nothing about sleep other than sleep hygiene. As a psychologist, I, I don't know about medical school. I, I heard it's not much better, but for no. psychologists, there's no training about sleep. Yeah. Yeah, there's almost nothing in medicine either. Yeah, so very sad. I hope that's going to change slowly, <laughs> if not sooner. Well, thank you very much. Um, I do have another question about what you think about the future of, you know, sleep medicine, especially from your area and where you think AI can come in. But I don't know whether you want to dive into that topic or not. <laughs> I'm just curious, pure curiosity. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know much about AI. I mean, I heard about it, but honestly, it could, it could go in any direction, right? With new technology, you don't know. Um, but I, I think. What I've learned over the years is as I get older and older, what I'm finding is that you have to be careful with new technology because there's always a new trend or a fad every couple of years, especially in our field. With, we like gadgets and different surgical procedures. Uh, when I started doing the Inspire procedure, the tongue nerve simulation, I, I was one of the initial surgeons that did the pilot studies you know, 10 years ago. And that was exciting. And we had this new option to treat people with sleep apnea who couldn't tolerate CPAP. Just like everything else, it's it's new and exciting, and it does work to a certain degree, but it's not. It's never that satisfying like any other surgical procedure. Mm. Um, so you have to pick and choose your patients very carefully. Have really realistic expectations. You have a lot of counseling. It's a very involved, hands-on ex uh, experience for these patients. Like with any other high-tech or newfangled devices or gadgets, um, you have to be really reserved not be the guinea pig when it first comes out. And eventually it, things will kind of pan out with after a couple of years and maybe after they used to do studies. Um, and so even with AI, I think it's exciting, but it could also just, I don't know, just fizzle out also <laughs> because you need, I think the, the problem with medicine is that because whenever you put some other entity in between you and the, and the physician or the provider, it kind of breaks down the relationship. So it's it's good that the internet can answer questions like you know doctor they call it Doctor Google right <laughs> and AI is gonna make it even even work better, but 
it's, it's good that we have so much information available to us, but now we have information overload. And what I'm finding is that people who have this information about their sleep problems, they get paralyzed. They don't know what to do. This is where people, the professionals have to kind of step in and kind of guide them and coach them and counsel them. The problem is that in the medical profession, they don't have time to do that. So it's, it's, like, it's like a double-edged sword. We have better options available, but too, too many options available. And the internet kind of distorts the, um, I don't know, it just has, has a way of distorting everything, you know, yeah. in a good way or a bad way. Right. So we really have to be very cautious and use our own judgment and uh, make the decision, get opinions from professionals, second opinions, right? And don't just trust all this information over too much information flowing around. I feel like we are going to the other extreme from lack of medicine, lack of certain knowledge to too much and we need to really now it's a new challenge how to find the right method and right resource for ourselves yeah and one last um piece of, piece of advice for people is that a lot of people who are very motivated do they do a lot of research they see a lot of doctors but like i said they get paralyzed but the people who succeed are the ones that just take action because without taking action whether or not it works then you know it doesn't work you go to the next action and I know some people who are in very dire situations with their health and their sleep, and they just were persistent and on to on and on to different doctors, and they try different things. And the people who are persistent, eventually, they have a much higher chance of success, improving the health of their sleep. Yeah. Don't just uh, search online, sit at home, just uh, go ahead, do something. <laughs> right. It doesn't matter which is better. I get like that question, which is better, CPAP or dental plans? I don't know, because you, know, you haven't tried both of them. And some people do better with CPAP, some people do better with dental appliances. So, um, and there's a, there's a degree, a various degree of responses with each appliance or device too. So you don't know what's going to work for you until you try it. Right, right. Very good advice. And hopefully whoever listening really take it in and apply this to their own life and go ahead and take some actions if they really need to. Yeah, thank you very much, Dr. Park. This is awesome. And uh, um can you please tell us again your book or any of, uh, if you have website or any other resources can benefit our listeners? Well, my, my book is called Sleep Interrupted. It's on Amazon. My website is drstevenpark.com, D-O-C-T-O-R-S-T-E-V-E-N-P-A-R-K.com. And I have a free PDF for your audience. Um, it's called Energize Your Day Dot Today. Energize Your Day Dot Today. And basically, it's a um, PDF on five simple steps to wake up refreshed and ready to go. Great. Wow. I already love this topic. <laughs> <laughs> I will put these links, your website, and how to get this PDF on our show note. So whoever are listening can easily uh, click and get access to it. Thank you so much for giving us a free PDF. Sure. My pleasure. It was fun. Thank you for listening. What's your takeaway from today's conversation? Leave me a message on social media platforms. Let me know. You can find me on Instagram, TikTok, X, and YouTube at Dr. Ishan. So the video version of today's conversation will be available on our YouTube channel at Deep Into Sleep Podcast. If you know someone who suffers from insomnia, please check out my insomnia treatment course. I use evidence-based first-line treatment for insomnia called CBTI, 
and the website is mindbodygarden.com slash insomnia. Thank you again for your interest in sleep science and wish you a good night of sleep. Thank you very much for listening. I'm Dr. Yishan. See you next time. Bye. Sleep is an individual thing. We all sleep differently and there is so much we can do to improve sleep quality. Keep hope and carry on. This podcast is for general informational purpose only and does not include the practice of medicine or other health professional services. Usage of the information we share is at the listener's own risk. And our content does not intend to be a substitute for any medical and professional services, diagnoses, and treatment. Please seek professional health services as needed.